Hello and a warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer and I'm back with my co-host Mark Koskiela to bring you another great episode. How are you doing, Mark? Yes, very good. Thank you, Helena. It's a shame I can't be uh, in the podcast studio with you, but we'll have to make do. How are you? Yes, I'm very well. Thank you, Mark. I have just got back from moving house, so it's been quite a stressful few days, but now I'm all in, settled, organised and looking forward to this week, especially today's podcast. Great. Well, good to hear you are all settled in. We've got a really exciting episode for for our listeners today. So we've got a great interview with GP Nigel Guest to discuss the idea of healthcare focusing more on prevention rather than having traditional interventional approaches. It's certainly an area that's been in the political arena here in the UK in recent weeks. It has indeed. Um, And later on the episode, um, myself and assistant editor Isabel O'Brien chat about the importance of patient centricity, looking back at some of Gold's recent patient-focused articles. But first, let's chat about some news in Things You Might Have Missed. So to kick us off, have you come across anything of note recently in the news, Helena? I have indeed. So last week was the Global Pandemic Preparedness Summit. It was held in London and discussions all centred on the five-year plan for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Um, It aims to turn the tide against epidemic and pandemic infectious diseases. Representatives from over 20 countries joined leaders from science and academia, industry, philanthropy and elsewhere to galvanise action around tangible and sustainable pandemic preparedness solutions. They committed to the CEPI's 100 Days mission, which is the ambition to have safe and effective vaccines within 100 days of an epidemic or pandemic threat being identified, and then these being distributed equally around the world. I hear that between them, they pledged $1.35 billion to support the cause. This has been seen as a key milestone in the efforts to reduce the risk of future pandemics and epidemics, and many people and organisations across the pharma industry have welcomed the pledges. Last week also saw the return of the brilliant Next Normal event. We spoke to its founder and organiser, Dario Safarich, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he promised a really varied agenda with some fantastic speakers, and it didn't disappoint. So what were your highlights then? There are so many sessions to choose from, but my personal favourite was the session on pharma and the future of health, which was chaired by Chris Easton. Um, He's the Senior Director and Global Commercial Lead for Personalised Health and Innovation, Rare Haematology at Takeda. The panellists, who incidentally are all based in Switzerland, which is well known for its innovation, focused on the topic of the moment, digital health, and the importance of connectivity and inclusivity using the power of combination, not fragmentation, as Chris put it. That sounds really interesting. Other topics included the concept of explainability, going digital rather than paperless, the metaverse, and the changing face of customer experience. The sessions are all available to watch on YouTube, so do check them out for some fascinating insights. Next up, we have our interview with Dr. Nigel Guest, GP of over 30 years and CEO at Trifolium Consulting, a firm dedicated to the transformation of clinical services, strategic planning and leadership consulting. Yes, Nigel has an extensive history in the healthcare space and offered an HCP perspective when talking to Jade Williams, one of Gold's content and editorial assistants, about her recent feature on preventative medicine in pharma. Let's hear what he had to say. 
Hello, my name is Jade Williams, and today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to Nigel Guest, CEO at Trifolium. Hi, Nigel. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Wonderful. Um, right, to just jump straight in, as the CEO of a consultancy with a focus on leadership, what would you say are the best qualities of a leader within the health space? Uh, I think the first one is competence. Uh, which might sound blindingly obvious, but uh, I think there are some leaders out there that aren't uh, particularly competent. Uh, that may come from consistency, um, it may come from experience, um, but it certainly needs to be there and it needs to be apparent. Uh, I think you need to have uh, an enthusiasm, uh, which hopefully is contagious. Um, I think you need to have the support of whomever you are leading, if that's a bunch of GPs or if it's within a CCG or other organisation, I think you have to bring them with you. Uh, and I think you need to have that support and you have to maintain that. I think you have to have a good team around you. And I think, uh, to quote Top Gun, you need to have a wingman. Uh, you need to have someone uh, who's got you back uh, and someone who is working very closely with you um, to enable you to do the job that you're doing because you can't do everything and you need someone that supports you very closely, but at a very high level. Speaking of consistent leadership, what is your number one piece of advice that you would give to the aspiring leaders of tomorrow? Very simple. Get a mentor. Everybody should have a mentor. Uh, that's the best way to come forward. That way you learn uh, and you have a reference point and uh, speak to lots of people uh, in different settings, uh, people who've been extremely successful, and they all say, get a mentor. When you think of a leader or a CEO of a large corporation, you think, oh, they're busy, they don't have the time for me. But I've, I've found, at least personally as well, reaching out to everyone, they seem keen to help everyone get to where they can be. Absolutely. And I think you have to remember that each, each of those will have gone through the, the, the process of, of, of growing and developing, will recognise their mistakes, uh, one would hope. And if they don't, they're probably not good leaders um, and uh, are happy to uh, pass those things on. Um, yeah, I think uh, most, I think most people have got a lot of time for people who are uh, aspiring and have the insight to be able to ask for some help. As a practicing GP, what do you find is the most important factor when you're interacting with pharmaceutical sales reps or medical science liaisons? I think the first thing to do is to interact. Um, a lot of primary care uh, clinicians uh, have stopped seeing uh, representatives, which I think is folly. Um, I think, although it does take some time and you can be overwhelmed, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to listen. I think it's a great way of... Uh, learning about new products, it's certainly learning about new relationships with pharma as, as that develops in this new in this new environment. And I think it's about listening. I think you need to listen. Um, I think you need to be objective in terms of, um, of, of what you're listening to. And I think um, uh, subsequent to interactions, you have to do a little bit of background work uh, to put things in context because obviously you understand that it is a sales situation generally. Um, but it may not be, but I think it's, it's, it's actually engaging in it properly, um, not just as a superficial listening to something and then moving on. Uh, I think it's got to have value uh, for both sides. And I think you have to remember that pharmaceutical reps and, and other uh, medical science people that we, we deal with are doing a job, and uh, we're all in the same industry, and um, I think there uh, needs to be a degree of respect, and I think there should be a degree of engagement. Uh, and that applies both ways. Uh, I think it's, 
it's important that it's a proper relationship. Uh, otherwise, um, the ability to maintain those will will disappear even more quickly than it's disappearing now. So did you have to deal with the sort of sales reps trying to navigate the world of the pandemic and turning away from face-to-face relationships with yourself onto the online world? All the relationships I've had during the pandemic um, have uh, been online uh, and very much not personal relationships insofar as they've come from companies and I've been invited to endless um webinars and uh, pieces of information things like that which comes through on a regular basis and you have to be selective to be fair you can't read everything Uh, and so often things that are informative educational um, supportive rather than purely um, commercial and advertising are far more acceptable uh, are far more interesting and sometimes you'll see something like I have today on injectable uh, uh, treatments for diabetes and think well that's interesting I'll have a look at that so there has to be, you know, there has to be something that will um, appeal to you in any given moment rather than just this is a new drug, um, you know, have a look at this. Well, you won't do it. But if it has something linked to it, you, you probably will. Um, and I can't speak for all GPs, but I think that's that's the way of the world now. Mm, certainly. Um, moving on from the world of sales, The pandemic really caused people to become a lot more in tune with their health in quite a few ways. And preventative health is really becoming much more of a focus now rather than treatments. What would you say are the main ways which you saw this in practice? It's interesting you say that, and this is going to sound like it's facetious, but I have never seen so many men's testicles since the beginning (laughs) of the, the pandemic. Clearly, men were out there examining themselves and finding all sorts of things they didn't know they had. And I must have spent the first six months doing endless examinations and reassurances. And whilst that sounds facetious, it's actually true. Uh, And you're right. I think people have been more contemplative of their own health to a degree. But their access to the likes of me has been significantly limited. And I think, I'm sure Dr. Google has been very, very busy uh, with people um, uh, looking things up all the time. But our interaction, you know, has been very much reactive and dealing with uh, things which are relatively urgent or important. Uh, And therefore, we haven't, if if you asked me and said, you know, what would you have noticed most during the pandemic, it wouldn't be that people have been in tune with their health, that's for sure. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that now that we're emerging from it, although looking at the figures uh, today, the figures are still quite high in terms of infections. Um, but as we emerge, um, we we are starting to look at prevention. I think it's made us think very much about, you know, what can be done. Um, and um, the NHS, um, I was listening to a, a webinar from, from the centre today, is very much re-emphasising now um, where we should be with prevention um, and catching up with basically where we left off two years ago. So I think we're behind, I think we're on catch-up, but I think we also recognise that we have to practise in a new way in which prevention, um, in whatever form that takes, is incredibly important. Right, amazing. Just got to push people from Dr Google to Dr Guest. During the pandemic, remote monitoring tools were developed to keep an eye on patients' health during clinical trials. And this is something that I've discussed within my gold feature, pursuing a pathway of prevention. These tools could be repurposed for use by HCPs to monitor patients whose conditions might soon worsen. 
Do you think that this is a practical idea and how would you suggest would be best to use this software? I read your um, feature and uh, I think it's uh, really interesting and uh, enjoyed it. Um, I think you're right that um, there are tools that we can repurpose. Um, and I think in due course, we will. Um, it's very difficult, as I said previously, in terms of playing catch up, certainly with the NHS um, and using the tools we've got. And we don't use the tools we've got to their best capacity. So I think that we've got to look for new tools. We've got to look to new ways um, to um, utilize prevention in its broadest sense. I mean, you know, be that through from screening to uh, AI to um, immunization to all the things that are about out, out there for us. Um, practicality of it, yeah, I think it's going to happen. I mean, practically putting it all into place in one great uh, swoop isn't going to happen. But I think we do need to be acutely aware that we need to do things uh, better. And I think we need to use all the tools available to us. I think what we need to do is not to do everything piecemeal and try and do it as part of an organized system and a growing system, um, but also have people discuss how you might use tools, which, for example, as you say, are used in clinical trials uh, uh, and, and other parts of healthcare systems uh, to apply that to the day-to-day -day, uh, management of patients who are, by their very nature, um, diverse and uh, often um, not keen on taking simple preventative me uh, measures. Uh, and we must encourage people to do that um, from the very basics um, right through to the most complex. So, it's uh, yeah, it's a difficult situation. But, yeah, it, it, it is ultimately a practical idea. Um how we would use the software, I'm not an expert, but I think we, uh, I think there needs to be a significant interaction um, between pharma uh, and and the broader healthcare system to see how these these things can work in the most um, practical and uh, effective way. Yeah, certainly, it's quite utopian, isn't it, to imagine a future without any treatment options? It's purely preventative. Yeah, I think I think that is utopian. I mean, it's uh, it's it's it's, but you know, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? Exactly. Do you think we could one day switch entirely? It, it totally depends how technology, how science works. I mean, you, you could be in a situation where we could be almost be vaccinated against everything, couldn't you? Um, or you could have gene therapies or whatever. I don't think it's ever going to be totally preventative. I think there will be a huge amount of effective treatment uh, and early diagnostic. And I think that might be the best um, that we can hope for in the early days. But that in itself, to be able to pick up problems, treat them, uh, and cure them, uh, a phrase which is uh, often used incorrectly in medicine. Um, but to actually do that, I think, would be uh, phenomenal and, and is, is entirely possible for lots of conditions, as we have seen over the last 20, 30 years. Baby steps toward the future, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely, and we never know, you know, how technology is going. Something like the pandemic, you know, accelerates uh, what we're able to do. Uh, it drives science forward, um, and um, you know, it's it's it opens up whole new prospects. It also uh, opens up the fact that people are horizon scanning uh, in terms of being better prepared. Um, for um, events such as we've gone through in terms of pandemics, you know, to see where the next threats might be. Um, and obviously that 
can be at that scale, but on a, on a, a, a lesser scale, is how that affects any individual when it comes to common causes of um, premature death, uh, be that cardiovascular or, or cancers or whatever. I think there's a lot of work that we can we can we can do on a practical element and look at the bigger picture and look to the future and look how we intervene using uh, advances in uh, in science which are exponential at the moment, which is which is fantastic. Speaking of horizons and obviously horizon planning, do you have a horizon plan for the future? What do you see in the near, let's say, I don't know, 20, 30 years for preventative medicine? Do you think we could make any progress? 20 or 30 years, I think we'll make phenomenal progress. I mean, you know, as I was saying before, if with an exponential um, increase in the ability of technology to change things, if I look back on my career 30 years ago, um, the changes have been um, amazing. Uh, and one can only hope that they will be. And I think, I think, as as I said before, yes, prevention um, will be um, very much more um, the case through whatever mechanism that may be. Um, not perhaps using the the conventional thought of prevention that we have at the moment, which is you know the simple things like mass things like stopping smoking and. HPV uh, vaccines and all those sort of things. I mean, there's some fantastic stuff out there. But I think the ability to use um, artificial intelligence, the ability to use gene therapy, to use loads and loads of things that will be there. I can't even guess what it'll be like in 30 years' time, but it will be almost unrecognisable from now, I'm sure. So, yeah, I'm full of enthusiasm for that um, taking a much greater part um, of healthcare management in the future. Some great insights there from Nigel. We don't always get the opportunity to hear from the other side of the healthcare curtain on these issues. So it's great to get a medical point of view on key pharma initiatives. That's right. I especially like Nigel's comments on repurposing the digital monitoring tools used over the pandemic. Necessity really is the mother of invention. Next up, Helena is joined by our assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien, for a discussion around patient centricity, in which they dig deep into how the industry can support patients outside of providing treatment. Yes, our discussion is a reflection on the overarching idea of patient centricity with a particular focus on disease awareness. Hopefully it's a relevant conversation for all our listeners, whether you work in marketing, medical affairs or otherwise. Looking forward to listening in. Hi, Isabel. How are you doing? Hi, Helena. Yes, I'm really good. Thanks. Looking forward to digging into the topic of patient centricity today. Absolutely. It's such an interesting topic, especially when it comes to the disease awareness aspects. Yes. And this is the aspect we're going to focus on today. So obviously there are hundreds of awareness days and months every year. For example, March is the awareness month for ovarian cancer and endometriosis, as well as many others, of course. But many pharma companies will coordinate campaigns alongside these. And that is really fantastic, but there are also some challenges involved with this. And I want to focus on a few of those today. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is that while it's important to have awareness days for all diseases, it can feel like these awareness campaigns come and go quite quickly and there isn't much sustained momentum once the day itself or the month um, has passed. Absolutely. And this is a challenge that I want to talk about today. So last year, we wrote an article for Gold about the importance of getting campaigns like this right. And in this article, we spoke to Kate Wills, the Global Director of Communications and Partnerships um, at Malaria No More UK. 
And she said, all too often we create campaigns that if we're lucky, get into the news for one day and then it disappears and other news stories come to the surface. And I think this really illustrates what you were talking about there. Charities and companies need to be clever about how they're producing their campaigns so that they actually do have a lasting and tangible impact. Yeah, definitely. And a great example was that Malaria No More campaign that Kate was involved with. In the article, we spoke about how the industry can learn a lot from how it was approached. Have you got some more insights on that? Yeah, so something the group did that was really clever was identify that it shouldn't always be about creating a one-off campaign. It's actually really important to try and create a movement. And I think this is really key here. So while employees and companies showing up on social media to raise awareness of diseases is really important, I think truly impactful campaigns need to go that one step further. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree there. And I think focusing on the fact that it's not just for that one day is is so important. Um, but when you say about um, going one step further, what kind of steps kind of come to mind? Do you have any particular examples? Yeah, so taking again the Malaria No More campaign, this disease is obviously particularly prevalent in Africa and it has had devastating effects across the continent. So the charity recruited young people from countries all over Africa to use their mobile phones and create content that would create awareness and hope around eradicating the disease. And this culminated in a result that not only felt authentic, but it also resonated culturally with people all over Africa. That's really brilliant. And they built the campaign with the community to quote the gold articles title. Indeed. Yes, exactly. And the whole campaign actually had really positive effects. So again, it's this tangible outcome that we're talking about. It really did become a movement. After the campaign, Malaria No More ran a survey and 70% of young people now believe that the disease could be eradicated in their country, which is really so powerful and positive when you think about it. Yeah, a fantastic result there. And often disease awareness is as much about raising awareness to prevent disease as it is about helping patients or communities feel seen, heard and hopeful. And I think that's exactly what the Malaria No More campaign achieved. Yeah, absolutely. And this applies across all diseases, whether this is an infectious disease like malaria or even one like cancer, even cancers that aren't curable, which is something I want to come on to now. Yeah, and for very good reason. I think terminal disease awareness is a really important area that deserves a lot more focus than it currently gets. Um, just because a disease isn't curable, it doesn't mean it's any less important to raise awareness of. And in fact, I'd say it's arguably even more important for those patient communities to feel recognised and supported. Yeah, so another article I wanted to highlight today um, was one from last year, and it was one where I looked at advanced breast cancer, otherwise known as ABC, and all the sort of disease awareness around this. And when researching this article, I came across a report by Mary Curie. And what that report said was that seven out of 10 people with terminal conditions feel like they don't have the kind of care and support that they need, which is really quite tragic to hear. Absolutely. That's such a stark statistic. And it really does demonstrate how much work needs to be done in this area, and just how important disease awareness is in general. Yeah, there absolutely needs to be more work in this area. And someone who's really passionate about this is Claire Gillis, who is the CEO of VML Y&R. And I quoted her in the article and something she said that really resonated was health and disease can be messy. And despite great advances in the treatment of conditions, there is not always a happy ending. But this shouldn't stop us trying to raise awareness of terminal conditions and what they might mean for patients, carers and families affected by them. And I think this just rings so very true. 
Absolutely. And I think you're so right to pick up on the carers and families aspect there. It's not just the patient who's affected and needs information and support. It's everyone who knows and cares for them. And that's not necessarily caring for them um, in a in a formal sense it's just all of the people who are around them and with this in mind how do you think campaigns like this should be approached so a lot of what we were talking about earlier with authenticity applies but I think there are also some key questions that companies creating campaigns around terminal diseases should ask themselves so The first is, what matters to the people living with these conditions? And the second is, what is it about their lives that they most miss or most want to maintain? As you picked up on there, often in terminal diseases, it's about helping families and carers to understand how it feels um, for their loved one to have a terminal condition. But it's also about helping patients with these conditions to feel like they can make the most out of the time they've got left. So yeah, I think that dual purpose is really, really important to remember. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I suppose the same rules of authenticity apply. Yeah, and on that point of authenticity, while involving patients with terminal conditions in campaigns must be approached with absolute care and sensitivity, I think that goes without saying, pharma companies can expect to create far more impactful communications if they can facilitate real patients to speak about their experiences. So yeah, that's also really important as well. Yeah, and I imagine it's rewarding for patients too to feel like they might have a positive impact on other people who are in the same position as they are. Yeah, exactly. And it won't be for everyone, but for some, it could actually create a sense of empowerment in a situation where many feel quite powerless at times. Absolutely. Well, lots to take away there. Think about a campaign as a movement rather than a moment and be sure to focus on the diseases where there isn't always a positive outcome. There are so many ways that pharma can help patients outside of receiving treatment and disease awareness is a very important pillar of that. Indeed. And to all our listeners, if you are interested in reading either of those articles, building campaigns with communities or making a difference in terminal diseases, you can find them both on the Gold website at www.emg-gold.com. And sadly, that's all we have time for this week. It's been great to focus on the complex issue of prevention with Dr. Nigel Guest and hear Isabel and Helena's thoughts about how pharma can support patients through its various functions to live better lives while undergoing treatment. Yes, disease prevention and patient centricity are two really important and interconnected topics. So it's been great to cover them both today in lots and lots of detail. Indeed. So if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from if you haven't done so already. We'll be back next week with another brilliant episode brought to you by Helena and myself, along with the rest of the Gold team. Indeed. We look forward to seeing you then. Yep. Stay safe and goodbye for now.